Thank you, Janet Lee. I'll say your method of getting those melodies out, they, they fly like a banner. I thank you so much. I'm just vibrated. And hello, everybody out there. So today is January the 17th. This is Sunday. And we are in to the subject of Exodus Escape, Part 12. And oh, do we have a lot to cover today. And I don't know if we'll get it all covered. Seems like it's difficult to get it covered in the time we have. But we'll just keep on keeping on with this message until one day we can say it is finished. Well, one of the things I might ask you to do today as we get ready to enter into this very deep and spiritual uh, Word of God, to uh, put on the curious girdle. In the book of Exodus 28.8 and 28.4 and 39.20 and 39.29, it talks about holy garments and about an ephod, and it talks about the needlework of the curious girdle of the ephod. And it talks about how that this girdle has been used in very spiritual ways, and then people that were once very involved uh, in the ministry, so to speak, how that they just sometimes became disobedient. And one particular uh, general who was a powerful general for David uh, went against the orders, against the divine unction. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 2.5, he put the blood of war upon his girdle. You know, sometimes I wonder when I hear all that seems to be taught in the churches and how they teach it and how the subject of conspiracy of war and conspiracy of nations becoming uh, broken up and disengaged uh, of, of any kind of peace, how that, that seems to almost be an act of putting bl the blood of war upon the girdle. Now, Paul, in his teachings and his writings, he said, girt, and girt is a word that comes off a girdle, girt up the loins of your mind. So we can see that this subject is not only Old Testament, but it's New Testament. Matthew 3, 4, a girdle about his loins. And in Revelations 1, 13, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And this is talking about the turnings, how that you would turn to be able to get the revelation. And it's, it's just um, it's an enhancing of a way of comprehending things that people don't comprehend when they're not in the spiritual uh, aptitude to comprehend it. And so the Bible says, you know, that... The light shone into the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. Now, 
That didn't mean that the light, which was the Word, which was also Jesus Christ, was ignorant and made a big mistake and transmitted this Word into the darkness. And, and, and then, of course, the darkness didn't comprehend it because it was darkness, is how some people might interpret that. But no, Jesus and the Word was expected to be understood. And it would only take a certain kind of correspondence, a certain kind of reaction for it to be understood if the will of the people were to, to have that. But when the will of the people were not to have it that way, then they do not comprehend the Word because the darkness in them does not allow it to be comprehended. And so... It's interesting. We have the positive darkness, which is a clean darkness, a wise darkness. And we have a negative darkness, which is a dirty darkness and an ignorant and rebellious darkness. And it ties in to different kinds of meanings of what we teach and call impedition. I-M-P-E-D-I-T-I-O-N. And impetition can be uh, a natural thing, like impetition in, in nature as to the environment. Um, if you're living in a certain particular location and, you ha and there's going to be an earthquake and you don't get a warning of it and you don't know about it, uh, then uh, that can be a very destructive, even life-taking uh, 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 impetition. And then there can be the impetition that occurs in, in the nature of genetics and, the, and an impetition that occurs in the nature of the mental aspect of a person's mind. And the Bible tells us about this girdle of the Old Testament was called a curious, C-U-R-I-O-U-S girdle. And the curious girdle, when you look it up in the big old books of of Webster's Dictionary, <clears throat> talking the big old huge full-size <laughs> books, and it means uh, from a root word, kira, or care, uh, to discover what is unknown. And that's, that's what the meaning of this curious is, to discover what is unknown, to be correct, to discover what is unknown about the puzzling and the strange things and to be eager to know them. That's quite beautiful. And so, in the book of Revelations, when God was beginning to speak in the Revelation, that in my title of the book of Revelations, it says, The Revelations of St. John the Divine. But as I read the first chapter, and the first verse, it says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So that we see that there is a parallel there, and there is a connectedness there, and an enjoining there. Because it is both the revelation of St. John the Divine and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And just like Jesus Christ says, I am in my Father, and my Father is in me, and you are in me. So, it's very beautiful. In the 11th verse of the first chapter, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. 
And that is very interesting because that's one of the five senses to be able to see. But let's put it into scenario here of how it happens. What you see, write in the book and send it into the seven churches. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice. Now, that is so interesting. A voice is speaking. And unless you have a hearing problem or something, usually a good, clear voice, especially a voice of an archangel or a voice of an angel, would be very clear, very permeating. But in this case, John says, I turned to see the voice. Not I turned to hear the voice, I turned to see it. So the word see there is connected with the word know, because you can hear something and not know it, and not understand it. But when you see it, you have an image and a description and a knowledge. And so sometimes how you are living, how your directives are, just isn't good enough to get into the new comprehension that you need to get into. Otherwise, you're just in the darkness that does not comprehend. You're into the negative darkness, not into the spiritual darkness, the positive darkness. And it is so important then to be able to come into that and understand that it, it is made and attached to a needlework. And that connects us to the needle's eye. And that connects us to the lattice which the needlework represents. And the beauty is so profound. And in Isaiah 11:5, it says, Righteousness and faithfulness are called the girdle of the Messiah. So when you look at faithfulness, you take the word faith. And you think of from faith to faith. Because it's faithfulness, which means a continuum of faith. And when you look at the word righteousness, you take the word right, like in to be upright, and becoming upright after overcoming the fall from heaven. And so those two very important and very deep meanings are called the girdle of the Messiah. Think you should get the girdle on? In Strong's Concordance, curious, which is curious girdle, part of the girdle, in Hebrews 2.805, says it's a, a, a waistband. In Revelations, it's very interesting because we read in verse 13, chapter 1 of Revelations, and and that a very, very important conjunctive word, in the midst of the seven candlestick, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And that word paps is very unusual, because it can almost, it can mean breast, and it can, or, or, or it can, it can mean some other things, but it's very interesting of the bosom concept that is tied into the curious girdle with those kind of words. And it's exciting because God is bringing us in that sense of the, of the curious girdle. We have a, a circle 
kind of design. And in that circle uh, and its understanding of the mathematical term pi, we have all kinds of very, very interesting things. And we, we start to get into, uh, you know, revelations that are not common revelations. They are revelations that just go very, very deep. Now, in the broadcast announcement, these are the things that we wrote and sent out in the mailers. Then the angels of manifest or manifold God said, let there be light. It might be very interesting to know how that was really said. How that was really said was quite different than most people imagine it. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, that's it. It's done. In the beginning God created the heaven and earth. God isn't repetitious. When he says he did something, he means it. And so when God says, in the beginning, it was done. Now, it begins to elongate that. And it says, it was done. In other words, it existed in virtual reality as it explains it in uh, chapter 2. And uh, when it says in chapter 2, 4, and these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. So that we see now that something is created, but it is attached to a time thing. There is a time scenario. And that is called the day. Now, this thing about day is a whole lot more important than you think, because most people think, oh, day, daylight. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That is not the first thing that happens in a day. In the Bible method, the first thing that happens in a day is the night. The night comes first. After that comes the light, the morning. So you have the, the night, and then you have the morning. You have the darkness, and then you have the light. The Bible says, for now we look through a glass darkly, but then we'll not just know in part, we'll know the whole thing, because the, the, the glass darkly is only part. So you have to come into the 50-50. So our bodies are like the night and the day, the evening and the morning. We, we have in us, in our bodies, the darkness, and we have in our spirit the light. But it's like the formula of Einstein. We come to understand with that formula that energy equals mass when you multiply it at the speed of light squared. So we have a source of action, a source of knowledge, a source of revelation to understand that people have in their hand, in their potential hold, in their potential action, 
the power, the opportunity, the potential to have both that which makes up a day, that which is a morning and that which is an evening, starting, though, with the evening, and then coming the morning. Now, in chapter 1, as I said, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and earth. And that was like chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. You've got to get it into the episodic aspect. In the day. That God... And let's listen to this. This is neat. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens or materialized it. It was in one state, in the invisible sense. Then he materializes it into a, a, a sense of, of being made into a physical, actual place, state, and condition. And it says this, this, was invo this involved, in verse 5, every plant of the field before it was in the earth. There's plants in the field of the field that existed before they were in the earth. And every herb of the field before it grew. So the ants go together. So these, the plant and the herb, before they grew, before they were materialized, before they were in the earth in the sense of, of state and place, they had been created. And then, in Genesis 1, it says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, interestingly, in Isaiah 45, 7, guess what it says? I form the light and create darkness. So that we see that darkness is a part of creation. So when people think about, well, there, there was no earth. Well, not an earth as you know it, in a materialized form. But an earth as it existed in a DNA type of setting, in a virtual reality type of setting. And it had all of the, the necessary makings, just like the, the seed and egg get is what produces the fetus in a person. And it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And this sounds just like Einstein's theory. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And that gets into the act when the word moved gets into the act of multiplication times the square of life.
the multiplication. And we'll see some interesting things on that as we move on through this teaching. And we begin to awaken because, you know, uh, we have to understand that this light didn't have to come, come from, from somewhere else in space. This light didn't have to come from on the other side of the first domain or from out of the first domain. The earth had all the ingredients it needed. Once the multiplication, the act was done to materialize it. The darkness also had in it all of the potential for light to shine. That was all part of the, of the, of the darkness because this particular kind of a darkness was a positive darkness. And we will see how positive it, it, that darkness can be and how relative, relative to Bible truth that that statement is. And people are marching out there into the rays of light to try to discover things when sometimes you, to really discover things, you have got to go into the darkness. And I'll show you that that is what the Bible teaches. Lucifer discovered that when Jesus went up to the Mount of Temptation, he went there with the purpose of defeating Lucifer. And he did defeat him on that Mount of Temptation. And he, he was taken around. He was given some really heavy temptation. But he says, you know, the way you're going to make it, the way you're going to exist is by not the physical food of bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how you're going to. And that's from the invisible God. So the word that is coming from God is invisible. So it is not easy to, to see. And, and in order to see the, the Word of God, you have to be turned around because until you see it, you can't know it. And until you know it, you can't have an interpretive understanding of it, a translation of it. Because hearing it alone is not the full response of the ability of translation. It's only a part of it. So the Bible says you look through a glass darkly and you, you know in part. But in part's not good enough. And we've got all, all kinds of religions, all kinds of faiths, all kinds of ideologies, all kinds of temples and churches and synagogues. And they are believing based on what they know in part. And therefore, they do not have the summation, the totality. They only have a part. It's like having the tail of an elephant and trying to figure out from the tail what the elephant really looks like, sounds like, what size it is, how much it weighs, and what it is capable of. You might get really mathematical 
on describing the physical aspects of the tale and know that, have it down in part. But that is not good enough to really get the whole picture and to see the whole revelation. So God said, let there be light. But there was already darkness when he said that. And if there hadn't already been darkness, there would be no need to say let there be light because the total absence of darkness is light. We're going to come into a story here of the Exodus that is really, really big on this subject of the light and the dark and, and an, of an event that happened and which I talk about in a story here. And it tells this story like the head angel of the good kind observing the arriving Egyptian legions of soldiers and its pharaoh noted their anger and spirit of intent to rush to the kill. Unnoticed by these Egyptian soldiers, death angels had ridden with them, mind directing them all the way. But now, a different group of angels, a different force, became an intervention. And a command of a few angels of the good kind said, let it be. And suddenly a glare over, overshines and, and by being induced as a dark dizziness. And as a classic act of warfare with a preponderance that just stopped every soldier of the army and the pharaoh in their tracks. And the darkness was so deep and the feeling so scary, the soldiers held tightly their weapons. These soldiers were some of the best. They were fighter type and nearly fearless. But they knew by the stories they had heard, by the rumors, along with many other continuing image things that came to them, that it was said of Israel that God fought for them. The idea to fight a god was certainly and surely beyond anything that should be expected of any soldier. Then the Pharaoh said, I will call on my God to war against their God, and my God will win the battle. I am Pharaoh, and my God is the greatest. And of course, Pharaoh said that shortly before the darkness had exhibited itself. Well, what was this action that took place? It's called a theophany. Sometimes they call it a, an, an epiphany. This epic called a theophany happens many times and it's described many times in the Bible. And why is this a methodology and a power and a source? Well, we're going to get into that because it is very, very interesting. But let's go first back to Genesis a little bit, talk about this darkness that was on the face of the deep, 
This wasn't just some simple Simon uh, Dabadooia bit of darkness. This was a deep darkness that meant that it was a consistency of having many potentials. That darkness had the potential of many knowledgeable things. But without a certain action, a certain moving, a certain understanding of the acceleration, the squaring of light, the speed of light, it was unenlightened as available knowledge. And it was untaught knowledge. Profound, but complex. Hidden, but concealed. Because not just hidden and you find it and you've got it, but hidden and you find it and you still don't know because within the find it is concealed. True, true mystery. Well, it's interesting, and people are probably unaware of this, but in Psalms 139, verse 11 through 12, the Bible says, the dark and the light are alike unto God. What? Yes, that's Bible. That darkness and light are the same thing to God. We're talking about positive darkness. It's interesting today that only 4% of the universe is called the known universe and is claimed to be somewhat understood by the scientist and the astronomers and the physicists, which then leaves 96% of the universe to be unknown. <clears throat> That's a deep darkness. And what do they claim that is possibly the greatest part of this 96% that's unknown. Well, they call it, guess what? Two things. Dark energy and dark matter. And we see that with that description, and even scientifically, they recognize that darkness can have verbs and adjectives that describe there being different kinds of darkness with different scales of capabilities. Why, we are being told that the universe right now is being driven apart and separating, and that it's, that it's dark energy that is doing this. Well, we can be sure that if dark energy is driving the universe apart, that it could easily reverse and bring it back together again. And there is so much to see about that darkness, because to see it is to know it, and to understand it, and to be able to describe it, and to, under, to, to understand its applications and spiritual attributes, and what it has as potential for us in an invisible setting that has to be spirit-moved upon to be put into a physical setting. 
And so in Genesis, it is so beautiful. And God saw the light that it was good. And the darkness he called night, and the evening and morning were the first day. You can't have a day. You call it what you want. But you've only got the 12 points of the day, the 12 circuits of the day, if you only have the morning, which means all of the, the 12 hours of what's called light. Jesus said there are 12 hours of day. If you walk in them, you should not stumble. But there's another 12 hours that makes up the 24 hours of a day that is dark. And you can stumble in that if you can't see. Now, it's interesting that nature teaches us that there are animals that see very well, very well in the day. And it's amazing. An eagle can see as it flies up high, close in sky places where the sun is just shining down. And it can see the smallest object miles away. But it is not a bird of night. The owl bird can see at night. It's a, it can, it's a bird that's been given, gifted a vision to see at night. And there are animals that have night vision and insects that have night vision. So that we see that in the creations of creatures, there's a distribution to some creatures that see at night and to some creatures that see at morning. And it takes both of them to make up the day. And you can't have a day without having a night. And you can't have a day without having the morning. And when the morning stars go out on their mission, they go out into the darkness. And when Moses was going to receive the law of God and the revelations of God, he went into the darkness. We'll be reading about that. And so this day that of the morning stars has to be understood. It's got to be, it's got to be totally finished. It's got to be brought back into the full spectrum. And righteousness to rise, to be sons of God that have come to the upright posture is all part of coming into this revelation, coming into this restoration and this regeneration. And it's a new kind of comprehension. And God is into to addition, he's into multiplication and division. In verse 6 he says, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. So there has to be a division so that you can distinguish 
And by being able to distinguish what is invisible to understand what Paul wrote, that things that are seen are made of things that do not appear. In order to come into the revelation of the things that do not appear, there is a revelation that you have to come into, very profound and very beautiful. And so when it says that God made this and God made that, yes, he did all of that in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. That incorporates and includes all of this. It was all done. It was all done in, in, in the virtual seed form, in the sort of a DNA form. And the potential of everything is there. And you are surrounded with potential. You are surrounded with, with possibilities. And that's why God says all things are possible. Said that through Jesus. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But first you have the Word. Then you have the realization that the Word is with God. Now being with somebody is different than it being somebody. So this whole revelation is a process and a masterful revelation of going up the stairs and moving up toward a deeper comprehension, a deeper insight. So, we'll take the time for Janet to come and play on the organ.
wow, wow. Thank you again. Ah, wow. I know now why I just get so many calls and emails telling me how much they enjoy that organ and your playing, Janet. God bless you. Okay. Now let's turn in your book, The Bible, to Exodus 14. And let's read beginning with the 14th verse. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Sometimes God wants to fight for you. He wants to deliver you. And you have to understand that you have to hold your peace. Because if you decide that you are going to tell people how that God is going to, going to do it, so that you can sort of help God out, you will be making a terribly serious mistake. A terribly serious mistake. Now, hold your peace when God tells you something and says, I'm going to do this for you. Don't jam him on the time. Don't jam him on the where, the when, the why. Don't jam God on his method and who he uses and who he doesn't use. Because the Bible says that it's a very common thing that people do not know what belongs to their peace. He further says, Jesus says this, that he will trust no mortal because he knows what is in the mortal being. So when God says, I will fight for you, you need to really listen to what he has to say. Now Paul, most of the time moved by the Spirit, but not always. And one time, as he was being tested by some of the magistrates, he did such a profound job by the Spirit of his story that two of these top magistrates said, you know what, this man isn't guilty. We don't find anything that shows him being worthy of death. And then the head magistrate said, well, unfortunately, we could allow him to be free. We could allow him to go. Loose him out of his bonds. Loose him out of his prison. If he had only not appealed unto Caesar. But because he made an appeal unto Caesar, we can't let him go. He'll have to be heard by Caesar. Well, Paul never did get delivered from that decision to appeal to Caesar. 
that ended up eventually causing him to be executed. Sometimes when God says to you, as he said here to the children of Israel, and to Moses and Aaron, the Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That's what you've got to do, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to learn to hold your peace and let God do the spiritual work. Now, in verse 19, and we're in the 14th chapter of Exodus, and the angel of God, usually when something says the angel of God like that, it means the angel that is representing God. God as represented. And that representation of God creates a theophany. And that theophany comes in a a certain kind of form that looks like a cloud, lacy cloud material. It's called the Shekinah glory. And it represents the presence of God. In this case, the presence of God via an angel representing God. And the angel which had been going before the camp. Now when the 600 and some thousands of army personnel who were mostly young men, and they represented the father ministry as the father ministry stood for the children and the people of Israel. And they were the, the main body that went over into the wilderness. And they would meet later with the larger number of, of people that went a couple, two, or three different routes. And they were to meet up, and they were to bring uh, investments that they had purchased with their monies so that there would be supply coming in. And that was a great and beautiful and profound separation that was necessary just for the practicality of that journey and escape through the wilderness and the very harsh environment and geology or geographical outlay of the land. And the angel then that had been leading them as a, by a cloud. And when the Bible says the cloud would stop, Israel stopped. When the cloud moved forward, they went forward. Now, I personally have seen with my own eyes at least three times the Shekinah pillars of God. And I have seen them manifested once outside. It appeared while I was sitting in a car waiting for something and all of a sudden I watched it a, a form and appear and went up like a pillar and it must have it must have gone up thirty or forty thousand feet high. 
And I sat there and watched it, and I knew what it was. It was a, it was a pillar cloud. And I knew God was speaking to me, and God was saying, I am going before you. And one of the things that God often says to humans, do not be afraid. Do not be fearful. One of the most important things that people have to realize in these very difficult uh, times of survival and times of living, and with a world that is veered into an insanity in many people, and with a world that has many, many people that think nothing about taking the life of a person. It, they have absolutely no value that they put on life. So it is very, very important to need to listen to God. And the children of Israel, at this scripture we're getting ready to read, they had made it. And we're talking about these 600 and some odd thousand men. And of course, there were some of the ladies and some of the other helpers besides that army that were there to help with the cooking and other things. But when they, as they were by the Red Sea, waiting for the next commandment from Moses, they knew they were to somehow cross the Red Sea, but they didn't know how. They didn't know but what there might be ships that would come in and take them across. They, they just didn't know. But then there was a sound that was heard. And some of the people that had been watchmen up on a high plateau began to shout and say, the Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, they're coming. They're coming. They've found our trail somehow. And I'll tell you, that those 600,000 soldiers were terrified because they knew that this army that was coming was one of the best armies in the world at the time. And they knew that they were, going to, they were coming for revenge. And what they said to Moses, did we have to come here to be buried in this wilderness? instead of being buried in the fruitful land of Egypt? Is that what this is about, to come here to die? They were expecting to die. They were expecting to be defeated. Even though they had been led by God, led by angels, seen signs and wonders. When they saw this army coming of the Pharaoh, they were terrified. And then the angel of God, which went before the camp, the one that had been leading them, removed. He changed from what he had, the position that he had been in, and he went and he got behind all of the people of Israel. And the pillar of the cloud that had been before them was suddenly moved so that the cloud went behind them, behind the people of Israel, behind the army, so that it came, in verse 20, between the camp of the Egyptians 
and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud of darkness to the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to the Israelites. And that state of theophany, that condition, made it so that the, this deep darkness that they did not want to war in it or to move in it. And as long as this, they called it night, this deep darkness was upon them, they remained separated one army from the other army, one nation's group from the other nation's group. Now while that was going on, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea began to roll back. Now this just didn't happen instantly, it was a process. And that rolling back of the sea and the winds coming in was happening while this darkness was still in place. For the Egyptians, in verse 23, had pursue, pursued them. and wanted to intercept them before they got all the way across, as some of them began to make their way into the sea. But in the 24th verse, and this is very interesting, it says, And it came to pass that in the morning, watch, the Lord looked into the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels, and, drave, and they uh, drove the chariots heavily, and they said, and this is the Egyptians, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against us Egyptians. Now, when you look up carefully, this thing about the pillar and about them going to the back of the Israel people. You discover when they get to the back that what it's actually talking about, and you find this in Strong's Concordance H, which means Hebrew, 310. That what it means that that darkness stood for at that time, in that epiphany, in that theophany, was a turning back of time. And this was akin to some other incredible experiences that the, that the Bible tells about. For instance, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 38, the Bible says, I will deliver you from the, and this city out of the hand of the, of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. 
This is God going to defend the city. Now, Assyria at one time was as powerful, if not more powerful, than the, than the Egyptians. They became an incredibly powerful uh, uh, nation, and, and they were uh, cooperated uh, with a, a Babylon. And he says, I will give you a sign of how I'm going to do this. Verse 8, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees, which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backwards. So when they go to the back, behind the Israelites, it's all about, and as we can see in the Hebrew words, this turning back of the time. And he says, I will bring the sundial of, the, of Ahaz ten degrees backwards. So the sun returned ten degrees. Now when it says the sun turned ten degrees, it doesn't mean that the sun literally moved, but that the time that the sun would have represented in its light, that the effect of it was turned back. And that's what we're talking about in the theophany. So that's why some scholars have recognized that when they have tried to use some of the things that they uh, found in the scriptures about volcanic rock and certain things, that they said, well, this place that this happened had to have been, by Sinai, a place where there was a volcano. And some of the scholars says, well, not necessarily, because it was a theophany. And because it was a theophany, then that means that it, that it was the things that they were seeing was only by effect of it happening and not by the actuality, actual, actuality of it happening. The effect was real, but not as real in the physical sense, but as real by the spiritual sense that affected them physically so that as they felt it and looked at it and sensed it, it was an actual happening. Now that happened in Joshua 10, 13, where they were in a battle and they knew that in order to defeat the enemy, they needed to continue wiping them out, destroying them, but they saw that the moon and the sun were beginning to go down. And Joshua prayed, and this is in Joshua 10, 13, it says that the sun and the moon stood still. Now, it doesn't mean that they literally stood still, because if they did, the planet would have went off into space, the sun would have been dislodged uh, uh, from, from, from its uh, 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 orbit. But what it was talking about is the effect of it, as though that did happen, occurred, and it was an epiphany. Or as we like to call it, it had the effect of actually happening but happening in the spirit sense, which was called a theophany. 
Now that is nothing less than awesome. And ladies and gentlemen, it's part of the Exodus escape. When you don't know this, you don't know about the Exodus escape. You don't understand that it's Moses who wrote Genesis. And when he's talking about, and in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, it's done. It's there in the invisible sense. He describes that in the second chapter. All of a sudden you begin to understand why Moses could talk like that and write like that and reveal like that and speak of those revelations because they experienced it. They experienced the Shekinah glory, the, the oh, epiphany. They experienced it. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, you talk about incredible and exciting. It is nothing less than absolutely, absolutely awesome. Absolutely, totally awesome to be advantaged with having this knowledge of how great the escape was. This escape involved Shekinah glories. It involved turning the time back so that, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't have any effect on you, though it's supposed to have an effect, because you get into the revelation of these epiphanies and theophanies. When you come into these theophanies, and epiphanies. They're part of the escape. They're how that they were able to escape. And they had to learn the, 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 these things from God. And Jesus says, you need to understand this. I am not greater than the Father. The Father is greater than me. And he said, even things like how to resurrect the dead he said, my father has taught that to me because he understands that I have taken a body after the seed of Abraham. And so I have a limited access to the darkness that's genetically there until something is revealed from outside of that dimension and takes me into that deeper understanding. So, he says, but when you see me, you, you see God. Because God is invisible, but then there is the Word. And the Word was with God. That's two different kinds of a state. First, there is the Word. Then there's the Word with God becomes a duality. Then the revelation of the of the experience of the enjoining and becoming one in that enjoining so that now the Word is God. And you know that's how we're going to come into this overcoming. There's the Word, then there's us being with the Word. Jesus says, I'm in my Father, my Father's in me, 
and you'll be in me, and when you're in me, if you have me, you have the Father. And that enjoining is so important and so beautiful. So we begin to realize that in the darkness, in the dark, in the darkness, in the dark, incredible things can happen. Now Jacob had a physical body. He, that was a darkness. But yet in Numbers 24, 17, it says, A star shall rise out of Jacob. Well, that means a star shall rise out of the darkness. Well, does that not make sense? Of course it does. Why is this darkness so important? Why are there so many scriptures? So many scriptures. God speaking to Abraham and telling Abraham to tell the stars what is their, their number. And speaks in Genesis 15, 5 through 18. And I'm going to read that. Genesis, we'll go over here to Genesis 5 through 18. I, I just, uh, I, I just, uh, 15, Genesis 15 and verse 5. And this is so important. There is so much revelation here. And it's so deep. And I just feel so important to get this to you. 15, verse 5. Let's read verse 1 first. After these things, the word, W-O-R-D, of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. Here's another proof of that same thing I was talking about. Seeing. Not just reading, not just hearing, but seeing. Seeing the word, meaning to know the word. And then what was he to know? Verse 5. And he, being the Lord, brought him forth, being Abraham, abroad. And said, look now toward heaven. Now, I explained this, that this was probably a case in which the Ziths took Abraham up and really gave him some revelation. And, and he goes on in verse 6, And Abram believed in the Lord, and he counted, him, counted it to him for righteousness. Verse 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a whore of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not there, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. But as one reads in Exodus 12.40, you discover that that four hundred and four hundred and thirty years incorporates and includes the sojournings. And you discover in Galatians 3.16-19, that, it, that that covenant that was given to, to uh, Abraham is a part of this whole thing of the Exodus escape. And so it's included in that 400 years. But where did he get this revelation? Where did he begin to understand this? When he fell to sleep and this horror of a great darkness came upon him. He had to go into the darkness. And it is here 
that he begins to get this revelation that is a prophecy about what is to come. It is here in verse 18 that he, he understands about the covenant that is to be made and th that his seed is, has a promise of the land and we've got the revelation that it goes from the river, which is the great Nile of Egypt, unto the great river Euphrates. And then when you start getting in those kind of revelations, uh, are there ever many, many things Many, many things that just begin to get multiplied. Just begin to get multiplied. And it begins to bring you into an understanding of the mystery of darkness, of the mystery of the unknown, of the secret place of the stairs mentioned in the Song of Solomon 2.14 that says, O my dove, meaning the Holy Ghost, Thou art in the cliffs of the rock, in the secret place of the stairs. This is that stairway that Jacob saw going up and going down with people, with angels. Let me see your countenance. And this is talking about this new kind of consciousness. And it says, in blessings I will bless. In multiplying, I will multiply. And this is all that same thing about from glory to glory, from faith to faith. How that there is the, this multiplicity. How there, that these blessings increase blessings. And the power to know when to divide. The power to know when to separate. The power to know when to multiply. The power when to do all these are absolutely incredible, incredible. And the understanding where there are promises all the way to the Euphrates, and the understanding of that thing about the Euphrates, because in Genesis 2.14, the fourth river was the Euphrates people. And in Revelation 17.15, it made it very clear that these waters represented people, nations, and tongues. And the promise is goes all of the way to the Euphrates, and in Revelations 9, 14, and 16, 2, there's all kinds of additional things said about the Euphrates because the mother and father of Adam came from the Euphrates people. And all these revelations begin to see why the promised land that went, then was made to go all the way back to the Euphrates. And what that has in meaning, as far as some of these Euphrates people who did not have souls, but had the promise to get souls, just like any human beings that can ever come into the consciousness of God would have by coming into this higher com comprehension, when the darkness begins to comprehend what is being said, and the darkness begins to move out of the partial darkness so that it comes into a, a day, and the day has an equal part of light and an equal part of night, of darkness, and they then become one unity. And in that unity is when they begin to come into the revelation that God is doing on this earth. And it is absolutely awesome and beautiful. And we know that when we get into these revelations and Abraham says, 
You know, God says to Abraham, you know, can you, I want to take you, I'm taking you abroad. I'm taking you away from this state of mind that you're in, this, these limits. I'm going to take you abroad, and you're going to have to just believe this by faith. And if you believe it by faith, I'll count it to your righteousness. And that's exactly what God did. And he said all these things that I've read to you. And the revelation in Judges says, and the stars fought from heaven. And we see that there is much more connection to what these stars represent as angels. And how that they can speak from heaven. You can be on earth, but there's some kind of a state of thing that happens that enables it to be that you can see and you can hear them as though they were standing right next to you, talking and visible. That this is something that the scientists come close to called entanglement. And that Newton, one of the greatest scientists that ever lived, said that came to him, and he was a very religious man, that all things were connected. That when something happened in one part of, of, of the universe, it happened in another part. And of course, that was what Jesus said. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven. What is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. This exodus escape is huge. It is huge. Because all of these things have coordinates. All of these things have deep, profound revelations. And so, let me, let me read Exodus 20, verse 21. Exodus 20, verse 21. This is profound. Absolutely profound. Here we go. And here's what it says. Now, I want you to get this. Now, I want you to really get it into your brain. I want you to gird up your mind. And the people stood afar off. And Moses, or you could say but Moses, drew near into the thick darkness where God was. I want to read that again. I want you to get this. And the people stood afar off. That's one of the greatest problems you have in the church world today. People that are following God from afar. They do not have the in-depth revelation. They only know in part. They don't know in the depth of things. They don't understand that the day includes both the, day, the darkness and the, uh, the morning and the night. They don't understand that there's 24 circuits. And you need all the 24 to get the full revelation. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, thou, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. <laughs> wow. These are profound revelations. In Psalms 18.9, it talks about Bowing the heavens. Now I may have to go a little bit longer here today just to get this least part done. But I'll make it short as possible. 
Let us look in Psalms at chapter 18. Psalms 18, because this is quite profound. And it, it verifies this story. It verifies this thing about getting into the time root and how that, that this is a whole revelation of the Exodus escape. Here we go. Let me read this. Verse, uh, chapter 18. And here it goes. He bowed the heavens and came down. When you talk about something bowing, that's another way of saying something has life. Something is personified. Something is obeying the command, is moving. There's a multiplicity. There's a conveyance. He bowed the heavens and came down. He's saying that the heavens themselves, in this spiritual context, bowed down so that the effect of heaven that was displaced, in a sense, of being not on earth, was bowed down to where it touched in this spiritual conveyance so that a person would be able to hear what heaven had to say what, and see what heaven had to reveal. And then it says, He bowed the heavens and came down, and darkness was under his feet, under God's feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. And he did fly upon the wings of the wind, and he made darkness his secret place, his pavilion around about him were dark waters, thick clouds of the sky. And he thundered in the heavens. Wow. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be darkness. These are all beautiful revelations of God. And Moses drew near to the thick darkness. We want to really open up this revelation so that you will be given a personal realization of these Bible happenings. And how utter, how utter it is to know these things. And how they have the power to change you from the creature that you are. And you can't just be totally possessed by dawn. You must allow enough displacement of dawn to come out of your body so that you have an equal portion of the deep dark. And that's what will make a full day. And when you come into a full day, then you'll be coming in to this new comprehension. So, let me just say a few things here. There must be a look at people that are 
shifting from their commitment to God. Because that causes them to be like being part of shifting from the particles that make up a building. That part of them, which is their destiny, is being shifted away from. And it is a a calling of ambiguity. This ambiguity is a loneliness of separation and I and an identification to a passive and to a bonding to characteristics of subsolistic or subselective choices. And it breeds the making of interpretive decisions that are defective to one's own well-being and goes against one's own deep convictions and instead identifies a person to a passive phase of dangling uncertainties. And as a result, it can cause you to become unidentified as to what the will of God is for your life because you have mentally blocked the Holy Spirit. And true progress can never be completed in that kind of a dealing, but passes on to unbounded situations. But you can come into the understanding of what I'm saying here and understand that you cannot know by the flesh who are relative of the destiny that the unaided spiritual eye yearns for the face of God. And God wants to charge you with truth. Well, I have so much more. But I have run out of time. God bless you. God bless you.